Oh boy, Luke chapter 22 and verse 39. I think you'll recognize uh, where we are in the story of Jesus. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. I think Luke is kind of generous with the disciples. Um, they're sleeping for sorrow. You know, not weariness, not, not a big meal, big Passover meal. Now, you know, uh, around the bonfire, they start nodding off. It's, it's sorrow. Um, he'll do this in another place. I won't go into it. It's just like my own thing. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus was only 33. William Barclay made that observation. He said, Jesus was only 33 and no one wants to die at 33. For some reason, that simple statement caught me off guard. I was reading a familiar story. I was reading a familiar story to prepare for this morning. That was all. I wasn't thinking about the whole story. I wasn't giving consideration to this moment in Jesus' real life experience. I'm just reading a story, but being reminded of his age stirred within me empathy for him. Yeah, well, from my perspective, now he's just just a kid. And, and feeling this empathy, I felt pulled closer to him. He's suffering. Jesus Christ is suffering. It's the kind of suffering that rips your heart to pieces. The physical suffering, that was, that was coming. That wasn't yet. But the emotional suffering, this is, I think, his, the greatest suffering he experienced. And, and, and all that's entailed within it, his loss of connection with the father or whatever else is coming. My youngest child is older than Jesus was when he was pouring out his heart to God in Gethsemane. We have followed him through Luke's gospel 17 weeks, watching him pray, listening to him teach about prayer, his, uh, uh, listening to his own prayers, uh, his parables, and, and so on, his instructions to the disciples. And, and all the way through the story of Jesus, there's been this underlying tension, this conflict, and it explodes here in the garden. And it's not a conflict 
with the scribes or the Pharisees or the chief priests. Yes, they, these have been antagonists to, to the protagonist of Christ all along. But that's not where the conflict is. The conflict is with his destiny because he's now come to the moment of his destiny. This is why he came into the world. And, and, and the conflict is with everything that opposes God and ruins human lives. It is the, the ultimate battle of good versus evil. For a moment, Jesus behaves in a way we've never seen him behave before. Jesus has always been the master of control. And when people sneak up on him and try to trap him with uh, an impossible riddle, a loaded question, he's always responded in calm and equanimity. He's always been able to turn the tables. He's always been able to, to maintain his, his composure. But here, he pours out his heart in words we've never heard him say before. He's asking the Father to give him a break. We've, we've never heard him talk like this. He taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We were to pray for a conformity of our will to God's will, but, but that's not what he's praying here. For a moment, it looks like he's losing his footing. But then he regains his composure, he gets up, and he goes to the cross. He fights the battle, and he comes out victorious, and he, he runs into his destiny. And during all of this, we hear his final instructions to the disciples to pray. And we hear his own last words of prayer, as, as told in Luke's gospel. Now, given the circumstances of Luke chapter 22 and 23, Chapter 22 is his arrest, his betrayal and arrest in the garden. He's marched off to the high priest's home where there's a mock trial. And from there, early the next morning, off to uh, Pilate, the current governor of Judah, where he is eventually sentenced and then to the cross. So, you know, a lot's going on here. And, and, Given this context, the prayers we're going to look at today, I, I could title this Prayer in Times of Crisis, or simply Crisis Prayers. And, and I think that's what's happening here. That, that, and it's Jesus who's in crisis. The disciples are too. They just don't know it at this point. Jesus is in crisis, and he prays. And, and so these are crisis prayers, but I... But I want to say that does not mean we're going to be given a script like the Lord's Prayer for when we're in crisis. If I said, okay, now here's your crisis prayer, and, and I wrote it out for you, 
it's not likely that it would fit whatever crisis you enter. I want to stress this. We're not given a method. You know, now this is what you do in crisis. This is how you pray. This is the method. First of all, secure your faith in God. Really trust him. Um, and to do that, know that he loves you. You know, really meditate on the love of God for you. And, and I could you know, give you a whole list of things that would never even occur to you if you were hit suddenly with an emergency. And even if you practice, 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 you see, it would be absurd to, to draw from this a, a specific prayer for crisis or method um, because the nature of crisis is that it, it comes as something you had not planned. You can't sit down and say, well, okay, here's going to be my next crisis. And here's how I'm going to make it happen. Um, we do not know in advance what the next crisis is going to look like. We could say that we're fairly certain that the United States is heading into an economic recession. Does that mean that it's going to be identical to the last time that a recession followed a midterm election, which is what, maybe like 40 years ago or something, that, that we're going to have all the same symptoms? Our, our world is so different today. We don't know. But there are pundits, you know, uh, economists, who are making predictions about the recession and what it's going to look like. But we don't know, really, how we are personally going to be affected by this potentially coming crisis. And when crisis comes, we don't know how we're going to react. Will I panic? Will I start looking for someone to hit? To, you know, am I going to fight? Am I going to collapse? I don't know, because I don't know the nature of the emergency. Maybe I'll be a total coward. Maybe I'll have a, a God-given bravery. A method of prayer that's composed in peace may not work when intense trouble rolls in or sudden danger looms. We may, we may not be able to muster anything more than a desperate cry for help. Lord, save me. That's all Peter could get out when he was going down underneath the waves. Or, I believe, help my unbelief, said a father gripped with, with the condition of his son. And even Jesus' disciples can't do anything about it. Or, what must I do to be saved? Uh, to be rescued. To be delivered from this, this life I'm living. Maybe that's the, the best that will come to us in, in a moment of crisis. What am I supposed to do now? I think 
I think if, if we look at these crisis prayers, it will be best if we just look for general thoughts about prayer. And, and if we develop right habits of prayer, we'll pray right prayers when needed. So it's, you know, it's, it's practice. And most important is that in prayer, we learn to secure our connection with God because that's more important than anything that we can say. We have to be connected. Prayer is where we connect. It's where we live in God. And constantly returning to his presence in awareness of him in the here and now enables our souls to find rest in all circumstances. And our prayers in emergencies will be acceptable with or without words. Okay, so here in this passage, Jesus gave his disciples a reason to pray in that particular moment. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. That was the last line of the prayer that he gave them, right? And lead us not into temptation. In Luke's gospel, it's the last line. This word temptation has a dual meaning, and I, I wish someone would make a translation where it would have both meanings, and I wouldn't have to explain this every time, because even, even now when I read temptation, I tend to think of enticement to sin and, and the fact that I am temptable. Uh, I'm sorry, so many words came to mind just now, like contemptible and you know, all kinds of emptables. But um, the dual meaning is enticement, but it's also test. The, and Jesus may be telling them, pray so that you won't enter into a time of trial, a time of testing. Because testing by its nature is no fun. Many things have to go through trials to see if they work. For instance, let's say that we have a metal. The metal could be steel. It could be aluminum. Or, and it's, it's tested to see how much stress it can take. Um, there are engineers, right, Rich, in architecture, who do uh, stress tests to know how much load uh, a bearing wall can take. It's really important. If I'm going to fly in an airplane, I want to know that these wings have gone through some pretty heavy-duty trials, and they're not just going to say, we give up and fall off the plane with a little turbulence, right? Uh, that if we had a lot of turbulence, and I don't know, if, if you're ever at a, on a window seat when you're flying and you can see out over the wing and you hit turbulence and the, you see the wing going like this, it's like, 
oh, it's flapping its wings. You know, it's, uh, we've got to be in trouble now. Um, okay, gold is, goes through the, the trial by fire because that's how the impurities get refined uh, or, or removed, and then the gold's refined. And, and so we go through trials. And uh, someone said, um, in trial, Satan tests us to bring out the bad, and God tests us to bring out the good. There are two things going on. And uh, I think that's clever, but I don't know that it's so. Um, and there is a proverb that says, if, if you collapse in the day of trial, then your, your strength is weak. And when I read that, I think, well, crap. Um, why put me in a trial to find that out? You know, why not just tell me your strength is weak? You know, get, get back to the gym. You know, uh, do some spiritual exercises. But we have to see it. It's not like God says, I don't know about Chuck. You know, he, he seems kind of weak in this area. Let's send him a trial. It's not, it's not for his sake. It's, you know, what I learn about myself. I, I very seldom polish my nails after a trial. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I did the right thing that time. <laughs> Even though we've prayed this many times, it's still a surprise when the temptation does come. And what Jesus is telling us is, you know, sometimes you can pray your way around temptation. You can pray away the temptation. You can avert the temptation. You can um, pray your way through the temptation. But pray that you not be led into temptation. And here, pray that you may not enter into temptation. We're asking God not to give us more than we can take and that we can enlist his help and strength no matter what. If I had just been in prayer, if I had just gone to prayer in that moment, I could have passed this test. So he gives his disciples a reason to pray in that moment. And Jesus prayed for what he wanted. He did not begin, Father, forgive me for asking something for myself. He did not feel that was needed. He did not feel like he needed forgiveness to ask for something for himself. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And I hear in this an echo of a story early in Luke's gospel and in Mark's gospel. And it's, it's the voice of a leper who comes to Jesus. And Luke says, when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he said, Lord, 
if you are willing, you can heal me. And, and I've always loved that because he doesn't say, well, if you can heal, heal me, would you please do something? There, there will be a man later on who will come to Jesus with his son and he'll say, if you can do anything. And Jesus says, if you can. If you can. And, and he's either saying, are you telling me if I can to please do something? Or he may be saying, well, if you can, if you can believe, all things are possible for the one who believes. But, but either way, it's not the same thing as the leper. The leper says, if you are willing, you can. You can fix me right now if you're willing. And Mark tells us that Jesus was moved with compassion when he heard that. And he stretched out his hand and he said, I am willing, be healed. So the issue here is, is Jesus' willingness, and he's full of compassion, so yes, he's willing. And now as he prays to the Father, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. You, I know you can. I know that you can change everything right now. It's as if he wants his Father to be moved with compassion for him the way he was for the leper. It's a tender and tragic moment because there's no reply. The heavens are silent. The Father is not willing. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure he would have loved to spare Jesus this moment. But if he had saved Jesus, Jesus could not have saved us. It's like uh, last Monday night in a Lexio group I'm in, we were, uh, the subject of Jesus being heckled while he was on the cross, you know, this is the savior of the world, this is the king of Israel, let's, let's see him act like a messiah and come down from the cross, then we'll believe in him. And... Uh, he saved others, himself he cannot save. But if Jesus had saved himself from the cross, then he couldn't save anyone else. That's, that's how salvation comes to us. So it's a tender and tragic moment when he says, Father, if you're willing. The next thing that I see is that in prayer, Jesus surrendered to his Father's will. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. So doesn't it seem like there's a conflict here between Jesus' will and the Father's will? If you're willing, this is what I want. But I set that aside for what you want. We also come to a point of surrender eventually. It's important, though, to surrender face-to-face with God. Otherwise, it won't be a real surrender, it will just be a giving up. That, that's a surrender too, but it's not a willing surrender. We may just be resigning ourselves to fate or to bad luck, and then it's impersonal. 
Catherine Marshall, Catherine Marshall, her husband, Peter Marshall, was uh, a Senate chaplain, I think in the 50s. And uh, if you ever can see the old movie, A Man Called Peter, it's, it's his story. And it's, it's an entertaining story. Uh, and it's based on a book that she wrote about her husband after he died of a heart attack. Um, in a Guidepost magazine article uh, that she wrote years ago, and I, I remember this from my childhood because this meant so much to my mom, uh, Catherine Marshall talked about the prayer of relinquishment. The prayer of relinqu- relinquishment. You can find the article online. She says, The prayer of relinquishment must not be interpreted negatively. It does not let us lie down in the dust of a godless universe and steal ourselves just for the worst. Rather, it says, this is my situation at the moment. I'll face the reality of it, but I'll also accept willingly whatever a loving father sends. Acceptance, therefore, never slams the door on hope. I don't think that we can jump to the prayer of relinquishment from step one or square one. We first have to learn from experience that God is a loving father whose will we can trust, whose will we can embrace. And maybe in time come to that point of not my will, your will be done. Not because he twisted our arm or backed us into a corner, but because we understand somehow his loving will is best. Next, I see that the agony increased the intensity of Jesus' prayer. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. It may be an embarrassment to discover that it takes intense pain or grief to improve our prayer life. You know, boy, when I went through that dark period of my life, I prayed like never before. I mean, we hear stories like like this. Okay, last week, I was asked to pray for a man who had thrown his back out. And um, when I was asked to do that, I thought, I should pray right now. And I didn't. But I did silence say, God, remind me. Um, So uh, walking Kona one day, I walked past the neighborhood where he lives, and I remembered, pray for him. And I did. And I, I don't know if I would have remembered again later on but Friday morning, early Friday morning, cold, cold Friday morning, I'm up at 5.30 to get to my son's house to watch his kids all day. And I grab my backpack filled with books and my iPad. And I tweaked my back so bad. One of those things, you know, where you're, you can barely stand up. And since Friday, I have prayed for that man nonstop. <laughs> I haven't forgotten for a moment the, the pain that he's been going through and wants to be relieved of. 
So being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then also in the story, Jesus woke his disciples to pray. I'm convinced that if our prayers are going to be meaningful, if they're going to be worthwhile, it requires our most aware state of mind. I can't just drone on with what I usually say. God, thank you for this beautiful day. Forgive me of my sins. Help me in everything that I do. I'm in. And I've talked about awareness and prayer enough that we don't need to go over it again. I want to go to uh, chapter 22 now. I'm, we're in chapter 22. I'm sorry. Verse uh, 32. I changed my mind. Chapter 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus prayed the most generous prayer imaginable at the worst time possible. They are in the process of crucifying him, and he's praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I would never... Tell someone in crisis, pray for forgiveness for your tormentor. I would never tell someone, pray that God will forgive the person who murdered your child. Pray that God will forgive the person who raped you. Pray to God that will forgive the accountant who swindled you. My first thought is, well, this is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Lord and Savior. He can do what we cannot do. And I don't expect us to be capable of working miracles like he worked or of this generosity of grace, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He was in himself a miracle. But I do admire and reverence Jesus for this moment. It's astounding. My second thought is, but there are believers who have done this. I mean, I hear this more than once a year. Uh, a family in court talking to someone who's murdered a family member and saying, I know that what you did was evil. And they're talking to the person who's been convicted of the crime. But God has shown you forgiveness and he's, he's helped me to forgive you also. I just pray that you'll turn your life over to him. And every time I hear a family member do this, I ask myself, could I? And the answer comes back, no, not in, in, in my heart or mind. I can't imagine it. So 
they, they have done this, not instantly, not at the time of, of the violence, not during the trial process perhaps, but at some point, they did realize this person needs forgiveness. And not everyone can, can grant them that. They, they didn't violate the whole world, but they violated us. And it's not just God wants me to forgive, so okay. It's more like God has worked in my heart. And now, however that is, they were led by God and by his love to do this, and it takes my breath away. Also in chapter 23, verse 46, or, yeah, 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. His last words from the cross were prayer. Jesus' dying prayer. This is the second quotation from the Psalms that he made from the cross. The first was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. This is from Psalm 31, verse 5. And I've been told that many Jewish mothers teach this psalm, this verse, Lord God, into your hands I commend or commit my spirit to their children as a nighttime prayer. They go to sleep at night. You know, it's kind of like, if I should die before I wake, you know, I pray the Lord, step on the brake. <laughs> I don't know how you learned it, but you know, don't let that happen. Um, I don't want to die before I wake. But um, for me personally, when I hear Jesus say, Father, this is not my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God is less personal, right? It's, um, he's still my God. I'm still hanging on to him. This is Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And for, for me, personally, I feel a cushion of comfort in these words. He's not succumbing to the torture of the cross He's giving his life. He's giving his spirit, himself, into the hands of his father, whom he trusts. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. My oldest daughter, Jennifer, has five children. And uh, all of them were at natural childbirths. Neil's birth was touch and go for a while. All five of them, she's had the help of a midwife assisting her birth. Do you know that there are midwives who assist people in death? Sometimes they're called death doulas. Doulas because they're mostly feminine. Doula uh, is a Greek word in the Bible, in the New Testament a lot of times, and it means slave. So they are death slaves, or they are end-of-life midwives, caregivers. They, they are assisting people in the transition. Now, there are, are cultures that used to do this. We, our own culture, 200 years ago, did more of this. Um, 
And it's not a, a, a celebration. It is an awareness process of gathering up what this person has loved, what's been meaningful, what brings comfort. Uh, Sean Kapoff has spoken here before. You might remember hearing Sean speak. A young guy, much more intelligent than I am, <laughs> and, uh, and a gifted speaker. And his wife, Kelsey, spoke here once, too. And she is now a certified death doula. And she has seen some beautiful deaths. Though it's not so much death as passing through a threshold. And she accompanies people and family afterwards. So that even though it's natural to fear this transition, some of that fear can be assuaged and also some beautiful positive moments can be found. And when the person who is dying is at peace with their death, then it can be an especially beautiful process. But I hope that we all breathe our last prayer with these words on our lips. Father, into your hand, I commit my spirit. I'm, I'm coming home now, and I'm trusting you for the journey. All right, we're now finished officially with this prayer journey through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke, as our tour guide, has shown us what Jesus taught, that we ought always to pray and not to lose heart, that we can pray in, in all situations, that every thought we have can be turned into a prayer. Nothing is too trivial. Nothing is too juvenile. My mom used to pray for parking spaces near the door of the grocery store. <laughs> we go, Mom. You're not supposed to pray for that. And if she found one close to the entrance, she'd say, thank you, Lord. And we'd say, Mom. And she'd snap back, the Bible says give thanks for everything. <laughs> everything. And now I thank God for parking spaces close to the entrance. <laughs> Nothing is too trivial. If it has you concerned, it has your Father in heaven concerned. Peter said, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God doesn't want you anxious. He he doesn't want you living in fear or living in the victimization of trauma. If it bothers you, it bothers him. 
and you can talk to him about it because he cares for you. As soon as we know and are convinced of God's unconditional love for us, the sooner we will realize that the safest place to be is in prayer. Would you stand with me, please? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for sharing with us your son. Thank you for forgiving us for how we treated him and for his forgiveness that comes from infinite love. Thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. Thank you for your grace by which we are made whole and transformed. Thank you for your spirit who lives in every breath we take. And now may we be continually being filled with your spirit. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.